90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hello, everybody. As we talked about, Shannon is gone on vacation, and I'm also in Austin, Texas at the Scientific Python Conference, or SciPy, or Shannon called it the Gathering of the Nerds. So as far as I know, this is the first podcast that has come out of SciPy, and I have a special guest with me today, Dr. Elizabeth Seaver. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. And you're at PLUS? I am the Public Library of Science. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do there and what it's like to work for the Public Library of Science? Oh, sure. Would you like me to talk a little bit about what PLOS is first? Yeah, let's, let's do give a general overview for those that may not be familiar with it. Sure. Um, so PLOS is an open access publisher that was founded in 2003. Uh, the first journal that came out was uh, PLOS Biology. And then the journal that most people know is uh, PLOS One which was the first mega journal. So what do you mean by the first mega journal? PLOS One publishes science in any field, as long as it's sound science, if it can pass the peer review test of this was done, um, you know, it was done scientifically, the, the stats hold up, um, there's no pressure to be novel or interesting or exciting. Um, just if it's good science, it should be published and it should be out there. So not only publishing your positive results, but publishing your negative results, too. Exactly, exactly. Um, it's really important for the scientific record that we get all of that out. Right, so how many papers do you process? I don't, do you have a regular release schedule, monthly, or is it continuous release? Um, it's continuous. Um, we still group things by issue. I think it's um, by month. Um, and uh, we get thousands of submissions um, a month. We have tons of papers. Wow, so I'm guessing that you didn't come at this from a, a business or a journal background originally. So no. <laughs> what field of science did you, did you come from? Uh, my degree is in developmental psychology. Okay, and where did you do your, your work for that? At UC Berkeley um, in Allison Gopnik's lab. Oh, wow, so very nice place and very nice weather. <laughs> it is, very much. <laughs> so you were originally a scientist, now doing journal work. What brings you to Scientific Python, the programming conference? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, so I was really, really excited when I, when I saw that, um, that it was happening. And um, I have a small amount of Python background, but um, especially thinking as a member of PLOS, um, this was a great opportunity to uh, reach out to different scientific communities there's so many different uh, research areas that are represented here. And so I'm partly here as kind of a big picture meta-scientist to see, you know, what does the scientific Python community look like? What are their needs? What are their publishing needs, even? Yeah, I know that's uh, it's a topic that we're all struggling with right now. And you hosted, uh, they're called a BOF, which is Birds of a Feather session, on open science today. And that had some really good attendance and really good discussions. Oh, yeah, that was fantastic. And thank you to everybody who came out and participated. We had such a diverse group of people um, from so many different research areas. Um, and, yeah, I wanted to get the ball rolling and talking about things like um, open data, uh, open notebook science and open research, um, we didn't actually get to open peer review, but just the idea in general of, of making science more open. Yeah, so I think those are, those are three things that we can attack, maybe even in that order. Uh, open data is, 
as we discussed, a, a pretty big problem right now because there's some groups that are dealing with massive data sets that are not really practicable to put on any kind of server and share. Hundreds of terabytes are very difficult to deal with. And then there are other groups that just don't have a place to put their data, even if it's just an Excel file. Uh, so how, how does your journal do that? Um, so PLOS, has, um, PLOS One has a data policy where um, for every paper that's submitted, they have to submit a statement saying um, in a third-party repository where their data is stored. And so that's for every submission. And there's, it's possible to get an exemption or a waiver if there's some sort of you know, sensitivity, if it's clinical trials or something like that. Right, yeah, export control is always a problem yeah. for astronomers and nuclear people, that kind of thing. Um, so what are some of the popular repositories you're seeing using, like GitHub, or well, where are people putting their data? Um, it seems like two of the most popular ones are Figshare and Dryad. Okay, so GitHub's not in those at all. I've heard of Figshare, and I, I've used it a little bit before, but what's Dryad? Um, Dryad is a repository that's um, currently geared at, I believe, hosting data just um, associated with papers, whereas um, Figshare has sort of a more kind of everybody bring your data here approach. It doesn't matter if it's associated with the paper or not. Okay, great. And then we were talking a little bit during the session as well about citing that data. Great. And that's been something difficult of if you cite somebody's paper and your paper, somebody reads your paper, goes to your reference list, and then they have to dig through an entire paper to find the one data point or the one sentence or maybe the one paragraph that you used. And you said that PLOS has a really unique solution to that. Uh, yes. Um, PLOS not only has DOIs for individual papers, but individual parts of papers, so that if you want, you could cite a figure one of a certain paper. And the way that they do that is um, just with the regular DOI, and then you add a slash, and then the part of the paper that it's in. So DOIs are the, the digital object identifiers, right? The, the funny looking codes that are at the bottom of everything now, it seems like. And when, do you know when they started issuing those? I've seen them for several years back now anyway. Um, I'm not sure. I just remember that it was only in um, the most re recent uh, version of the APA, the American Psychological Association, a publication manual that they started requiring them. And you know, I didn't know what they were at the time. And I remember thinking, why do we have to put these long number strings at the end? And now, of course, I can't imagine a world without DOIs. I mean, these identifiers are critical. Yeah, that's how we get the, the paper in the show notes every week, is we just put the DOI link in, people can click it, and go right away. Unless the paper ends up behind a paywall. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which, once again... Plus is open access, right? right. So there's, there's no paywall, which is fantastic. Yes, absolutely. Science for everyone. We want everybody to be able to read and download papers, especially, um, say, researchers in the field or in countries where they don't have you know, library subscriptions or good access to that. That's right. And being here at this conference, it's a little bit different for the academics that are here because there are a lot of folks that work for companies that don't have subscriptions to these massive databases. And you'll say something, they'll be like, oh, no, I didn't see that. And, well, it's behind a paywall. So there are a lot of ways that people have been dealing with this problem, either emailing their buddy that stayed in academia and getting the paper that way, finding it where somebody posted a PDF to their website, mm -hmm. or putting it on things like archive. So can you tell us a little bit about what kind of feedback you've got from people about 
do they want everything open access? Do they want all their data to have to be included with the paper? Well, it really, really depends on who you talk to. Um, and so maybe I could start by saying a little bit about my job, actually, because um, I realized I hadn't actually gone into that. Um, so my official job title at PLOS is Contributor Experience Researcher. And I think of myself as kind of a jack-of-all-trades who tries to help people within PLOS um, get the best data possible to make the best sorts of decisions. And so I do everything from... Uh, read papers on researchers who study scientists, which are amazing and fascinating. Um, I also do uh, surveys and interviews. And, um, you know, my goal is to just basically, um, you know, just help, help PLOS understand who scientists are, what their needs are, and, and think about ways that we could, you know, really um, be helping them out in our capacity as a publisher. So scientists studying scientists. Yes. I mean, as a psychologist, it's kind of perfect. Right. Well, and I know there's a couple other people here that are from social science trying right. to learn how a community that looks very disjointed uh, from the outside, all these different people from different fields, different backgrounds are coming together to produce one body of software that we all use uh, very effectively. And so you're trying to produce one body of science that we can all use, as it should be, right? a well-tested cumulative knowledge that anybody can have access to. Yeah, exactly. That's great. I, I like how you worded that. <laughs> <laughs> Though there is a problem, which we did talk about a little bit in the BOF, of incentivizing this. Right. It's a lot of work to make your lab notes, your data, everything presentable to the world. It's a lot easier to eh, not fill in all the metadata or not, you know, you, you know what you did. Right. Your future self might not, but that's another story. Uh, so have you had any feedback from people on incentivizing or what kind of... Uh, what kind of feedback they're getting from their department heads that maybe just want them to push out as many papers as they can? Right. Well, um, you know, open science is not monolithic at all. And I'd say one of my um, main findings in, in my research, looking at different aspects of open science, has been that, um, you know, different research areas um, have adopted different aspects of open science. And there's no, there's, in general, that even while people might espouse openness, a lot of it really is about the cultural practices that they're familiar with and what their uh, colleagues do. Right, yes, academic culture, is a, there's a, a very large inertia right. <laughs> in everything. Right, so, you know, coming from the social sciences, something like the archive, which has, you know, been around for about 20 years, and, you know, where um, people in physics, math, computer science, and engineering have been uploading their PDFs before publication. I mean, which is, you know, if you told somebody in psychology about that, I mean, that's like almost unheard of. There are some platforms that offer it, but that, that practice, which is commonplace now in like, you know, astrophysics, for example, I mean, it's very, very uncommon in other fields. Yeah, I know a lot of times you hear people say they're afraid they're going to be scooped in some way if they right. put things out there early. Uh, but as we talked about, that's almost never been the case for anyone. Right. And there, are some, there have been some cool studies on the archive itself um, that have shown that um, it actually increases citation rates, especially soon after posting. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I have some DOIs that I could share with you. And we'll put those in the show notes. Excellent. <laughs> so another thing that you mentioned and that we briefly got to touch on was open notebook science. Oh, yeah. Which, though it sounds very similar, is much different and maybe even harder to conceptualize for some fields. 
Right. Well, I'd say the, the expert in open notebook science um, is really uh, Cameron Nalen, who um, I've talked to a lot about this when he was at PLOS. Um, he, he's the former um, advocacy director. And way before he, he started at PLOS, he was already putting up in uh, chemistry is, is his area. I want to say biochemistry. Um, he was putting up his entire lab notebook, everything, completely open. Wow. So is this, this isn't just before you publish your paper or when you submit. This is daily updates right. to everything you're doing. Your data is completely out there. Right. It's transparency on this whole different level. And, you know, I, I don't think that this practice has become widespread in any research field that I'm aware of. But um, this is more for people who are, you know, say, open, open access advocates um, who, who really believe in this sort of radical transparency. Right. I, I can only think of one or two examples I've heard about of people practicing it. None in my field, right. for sure. It seems like biology is where you see a few people try, and the experiences I've read there have been a little bit negative. But it's, yeah. it's that culture thing that you're talking about, that academic culture that you have to fight. So what was Cameron's experience with putting his lab notebook online daily? I mean, I think overall it was really positive. In terms of especially, you know, the sort of the fear around that, I don't think he experienced any negative repercussions. I think, um, you know, because it was tied to his blog, he had a lot of um, discussion around it. And um, I mean, it, I, I think actually that's maybe one of the biggest problems, which came up in the BOF, is, um, you know, not, not scooping or something nefarious, but um, you know, just making things transparent doesn't mean people are actually going to see it. So you know, if you build it, will they come? <laughs> right. Academics... Uh and myself included, like to get absorbed in your own little thing that you're doing, and you're very busy, and no, I don't have time to look at that, or no, I don't have time to read that. That's a lot of stuff going on there. And so it could be a problem, but it almost seems silly not to effectively crowdsource your, your science. Right, right. So you know, getting into more of my, um, my personal beliefs, um, you know, looking at all of the different things that scientists have to do, um, and all the different things that go into being a scientist, it's really kind of we can't expect a single person to do all of those things. Now, of course, there's a division of labor between, you'll know, say, graduate students and an advisor, but I think that we should start thinking more granul- granularly. That's a really big mouthful to say there. Um, and, and think about how we might have people um, specializing in what we would consider now sort of subtasks of research. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, have you heard of the Polymath Project? I have. That's where they uh, people post problems online together. Is that right? Right. So it was started by Tim Gowers in 2009. And this was this complicated math proof, puts it up on a blog with daily updates and gets commenters from all around the world. And this problem that hadn't been solved and had been hacked at by a bunch of people individually in about a month was completely solved by oh, crowdsourcing. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's not really open notebook science, but open notebook math, and it worked astoundingly well. There have been a few people, we had one in the BOF today, that said, well, I didn't have the most positive experience. Right. But it is a culture thing that we have to work to change, and almost everybody in the BOF, even uh, the person that had the negative experience, said, I'm absolutely willing to do this again. So I think that culture is coming around. Yeah, I think there's sort of these, this kind of tension between two different things. Um, you know, one of them is, I think, you know, the same sort of thing that you know, Wikipedia taps into is uh, people's sort of natural desire to, to share, to help, to think, and to problem solve. I think that um, this is something that people are willing to do freely. I mean, there's, 
there's evidence of this. People will do this freely. Um, but I think that you know that comes into conflict with uh, career considerations. And you know, we mentioned incentives before. That you know, on one hand, it's great that all of these people contributed to this project, but um, you know, realistically, for a lot of say, for a young professor who is worried about getting tenure, they're probably not going to devote a huge amount of time to these collaborative projects where it's harder to get credit for their work. Absolutely. And I can even say I've gone to uh, forums. You know, I do a lot of hardware in my experiments in the lab, and I've ended up on electronics forums and got help from people on the forum to design my lab hardware that are electrical engineers. And it would be really nice if there was a way to say, hey, all these people contributed to this, and hopefully they're actually going to try that in the next, <laughs> next paper that we put out. Say, so go to this forum thread to see our hardware design process. That's, that's fantastic. And, you know, also I think um, um, a number of organizations are working towards this, but we do need a better taxonomy for authorship um, to properly acknowledge people's contributions um, because uh, authors can have, can have done a, a wide variety of things that might not even include writing much of the paper. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the serious legwork, you know, comes before the paper writing process. And, um, you know, there's a number of usually more junior people who maybe should be acknowledged for their efforts, but not in the same way as, you know, a person who designed the experiment. Right. Who, the person who collected the data okay. may not be the person that in, uh, did the analysis on the data right. or made the figures. It always oh, seems right. like this gets divided up amongst people, and then there's a fight in the end for where you're going to be in that list at the top of the page. So, yeah, I would like to see us move towards these kinds of machine-readable taxonomies for this information. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that kind of, kind of takes us into the uh, peer review process. Right. So you mentioned uh, you know, the way peer review works now, and then we've got a blind and double-blind peer review. How does your peer review process at PLOS work? Um, well, I've only recently been uh, looking at PLOS One, so I can speak to that journal. Um, PLOS One has a single-blind review process. So single blind review process, meaning the authors do not know who the reviewers were, correct? Correct, but the reviewers know who the authors are. Um, there are some fields where I know double blind, you know, such as psychology, um, is, is the standard, but uh, PLOS is single blind. Yeah, and that's a little bit tricky, especially in my field where you make a lot of maps and a lot of plots of data. Everybody has a, a style, almost like a conversational tone, the way that they make these. And even if it's a double-blind review, which from some journals you can request, if you look at the, the content, you can pretty much tell who did it because it's such a small subfield of people. So it's, it's a difficult thing to do in some fields. Um, I did a four-month research project on peer review. I have more DOIs I could share with you. <laughs> um, there have been amazing studies um, that, that have looked at that and where they've asked people, you know, um, do you know who wrote your review? And right. then to guess who it is. And I, if I remember correctly, in one study, it was something like 63% of the authors guessed, that said that they knew who had written the review, and 84% of them were correct. I'm, I might have the exact numbers wrong, but, you know, it, especially when it's a small research field and, you know, they're bringing up certain theories or certain papers, you say, oh, well, I know this came out of this lab, you know. Right. You missed citing these three papers, all with the same author in common. It, it shows up pretty easily. Right. But this is a show that we talk about science and technology. Mm -hmm. uh, Shannon normally is the, the science foil to me who tries to dive too deep into the technology all the time. So you said you're using a little bit of Python, and I kind of want to hear about that, what you're using Python for with your job. 
So I haven't actually um, had a chance to really um, use Python on the job. Um, I've been, you know, more trying to just kind of get get a hang of the language. Um, but I am a huge technology buff, and so there's lots of tools that I use um, that I evangelize about. <laughs> well, I love tools, and I love getting on tangents where I can have meta productivity and mess with the tools for a few hours, which is not necessarily good for writing, but... <laughs> but it's still awesome. It is. So what do you like to use? What do you like to evangelize about? Oh, gosh. Well, um, so one of, my, um, one of my favorite things, broadly speaking, is um, plain text and markdown. For, for note-taking, I just find that it works incredibly well. Um, markdown is just so simple and easy to use. Um, the, I take all of my notes in an app that's called NVAlt, which is a fork of notational velocity. And um, it's really, really easy to search. It's lightning fast because it's plain text. Um, and I keep, I keep all, of my, all of my notes in there, you know, whether it's interviews or meetings or to-do lists. And, uh, and then I have some, um, uh, some shortcuts that auto-generate, say, a template for the week. I, I'm a big fan of weekly to-do lists. This has been perfect for me. Okay. I find a month is big picture and a lot of stuff can happen and change. Um, and a day goes by so fast. Um, but with a week, you know, you can, you can kind of set up your goals and adjust on small levels as the week goes on. So notational velocity was Brett Terpstra's fork, like you mentioned, and he's yeah. recently said that it's going to be superseded with a new tool relatively soon. I cannot soon. wait. I am so excited. I saw that too. Yes, that's going to be amazing. And Markdown, I, I agree, it is the most amazing thing for note-taking because you're always going to be able to read a text file. Exactly. And I, I've tried Evernote. We've talked about this a little bit on the show, and I like it for some things, but it's a little like, I think David Spark says, the Roach Motel. Your, your things go in, but they don't come out. It's a little better, but it's still not something I'm totally comfortable with doing. So are you keeping your to-do list just in these plain text files then? or? Uh, yes. So I, I've, I've, you know, I've gone through a number of systems. And so th I feel like you know, in a year I might tell you I'm using something completely different, especially if this app comes out. Um, but what I do is I sync my notes across computers uh, via SimpleNote. Okay. So I've never used SimpleNote. So you might have to educate me on that. Tell me uh, how this syncing with SimpleNote works. Well, I can tell you the, the reason why I started using SimpleNote is NVL has support for SimpleNote syncing. Okay. So I was like, well, that's a good enough reason for me to sign up. Um, I, I tend to not use it a huge amount. The main advantage is they have a mobile app. So if I really want to take notes on my phone, it can go into the same Note ecosystem, which is a pretty big deal. I shouldn't downplay that. That is pretty nice. Right now I have, I do have notational velocity and it just syncs through Dropbox, which there are issues with that as. Right. Yeah. Oh, and I, in simple note and Dropbox, if you use them together, it can just spawn, you know, note <laughs> after note after note. And it's this crazy duplicate hell. So I would not advise that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'll stay away from that. I ha do use drafts on my phone some. I've been pretty oh, happy right. with that. Uh, but still fine tuning. It's one of those things, like I said, you can, you can play with for hours and hours. When I was using iOS more, um, drafts was great because you could also export it to all these different formats. Right. So I'm assuming from, well, what you've been saying that you're on a Mac. I am, yes. Hi, ah, yes. There have been, I would say, well over half Macs here, maybe over 75% Macs. 
I was here. trying to do some, you know, look around the room and, and get a sense for that because I always wonder with uh, developers how many of them are sort of, you know, Linux, Linux forever, and um, and ha you know, I presume that a lot of the computers that I see that aren't Macs are running like Ubuntu and things like that. Um, there probably are still people on Windows though, to be fair. Um, but yeah, it seems like more and more developers are using Macs. It's true, and I know. The people here that do a lot of development of some of the big packages have Windows VMs that they cry when they have to <laughs> fire up and try to build some of these things for Windows. It's just a really complicated system right now. Yes, it sounds like it. So do you use anything in terms of, I know you said you had a, something that expanded like for weekly. Do you use Text Expander for that? Um, so I use two different tools. Um, I have a keyboard shortcut for that, so I actually use Keyboard Maestro to auto-generate the list. Um, but I do use Text Expander as well. And I do that more for um, you know, the kinds of things that I write over and over again. What I really like about Keyboard Maestro, and this is so where I use them differently, is that um, you know, the support for variables is really, really awesome. Now, Text Expander, the new one, which I just got, might have some more of that support that I'm not familiar with. But I've just found the variable system really easy to work with in Keyboard Maestro. Text Expander does have a little bit more of that now. Uh, I have not used Keyboard Maestro yet. It's one of those things that's on my list. I've, I use Text Expander and then Alfred right now. And I know keep, some people have Keyboard Maestro shortcuts that do absolutely phenomenal things. Yeah, I, um, I, was, doing, I was doing some volunteer work on wikis, and it was mostly pretty mindless cut and pasting tasks. So as I would go on, I'd find more and more things to automate until basically I could just type a few shortcuts and all of these different clipboards would activate, multiple clipboards, also huge. Um, and it would, you know, compile all the things. And I even made it, you know, hit tab and hit the next button. Um, and I would just sit back and you know, they thought I was kind of a wizard. But, you know, just build up the macros one by one. Mm -hmm. And these things save little bits of time every now and then and it adds up. And right, it's worth the setup cost for sure. You know, I love automation. I want to do more with it. Um, Have you tried Hazel? So I couldn't really get into Hazel. Technically, I think I still have it installed. I was trying to do something where um, I was color coding for how old the files were to remind me to clean up my desktop. And then basically my entire desktop turned red and I felt guilty. <laughs> so that was the end of that. Yeah, no, Hazel's a, a pretty neat tool, uh, especially now that you can look inside PDFs with it and have it oh. auto-file things if the PDF has OCR. That's really cool. Yes, that's pretty handy. But nothing that I have on my system in terms of automation has lived up to Katie Huff's lightning talk yesterday. So the lightning talks are these short five-minute maximum talks that you can sign up for the day that you're going to give them, last thing in the day. And she had a talk on automating her wedding. Right. Oh, it's fantastic. And Katie's great, too. Um, so I, I really, really enjoyed that. And, you know, I... I never even thought when she said, I, I went on GitHub and searched wedding websites and forked one that I liked. Right. <laughs> that, that's pretty amazing. Uh, I've got a wedding coming up in October. Oh, and congratulations. <laughs> thanks. And it, uh, I wish I had known <laughs> what I heard there a lot earlier. Yeah, I mean, especially the, the automating the invitations about what they had said yes to. I mean, that, that was amazing. That, that was genius. <laughs> so... We've seen lots of stuff here this week, all kinds of new packages, crazy visualizations, people doing some great statistics, Randy Olson talking about how he automated right. his Twitter, you said. Right. Uh, what's your favorite thing that you've seen so far? Gosh, I really, 
I mean, in terms of just sheer wow factor, the the VizPy talk was amazing. Um, just you know, he put up one thing after another on the screen of just these amazing visualizations, including something that was incredibly complicated. I can't remember. It was something like ten thousand graphs of like two thousand points each or something. And that that was really incredible. This was a plot running in real time on the machine, a laptop, so this is on the GPU, that was, yes, 10,000 graphs of 2,000 points each scrolling in real time, and you could zoom in and out on them. And I, I downloaded it last night and ran some of the examples, and even on a MacBook Air, most of these things, I mean, flying over 3D terrain was almost seamless. It's right. really incredible. And I know he, he was giving the caveats, like, oh, if you download the package right now, you won't be able to do this, but, I mean, boy, if that doesn't get people excited for the sprints, nothing will. Yes, and visualization, scientific visualization is such a big deal. Uh, it's, as the data sets grow higher and higher dimensional, and it's really a challenge. And I don't want to go too deep in, <laughs> into this rabbit hole, because that's a whole other show that we could have probably. Sure. But where do you think publishing is going to be going in terms of animations and interactive visualizations and papers? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, well, you know, I would, I would love to see in scientific papers more interactive content like it seems journalism has latched onto, um, you know, with features like the Upshot at the New York Times, um, where you can actually interact with the data, explore the data. Um, and, you know, it was really great to see at SciPy some of the packages that people have developed for this. Um, but it doesn't seem like to me, I, I don't know if I could pull out my crystal ball. I'm not sure exactly what the front runner is, and I'm not sure what would become the standard. But, I mean, I really want to get to the point where, you know, PLOS already has, you know, a data sharing policy. But, um, you know, having research objects more closely integrated with the papers, I think is just really where we got to go next. Right. Or even about the best we can do right now. And I, there are some people that are doing this, is providing scripts for every figure in a paper. So if you want to play with it, you go download those from supplementary material or wherever oh, right. they, they are. And you can run the script and then play with the person's visualization. But yes, some of the stuff has just been amazing. I, I really enjoyed the VizPy talk and the, the ray tracing example with the balls rolling back and forth right. with lighting was amazing. It's unreal. Let's see. I would say uh, the lightning talks, there have been some good ones. Today we had technical issues. Uh, you thought it was only in academia that a bunch of PhDs couldn't get a projector to work. It happened at a programming conference as well. Oh my goodness. I felt so bad for everybody on stage. And there were some serious bad jokes and puns told in, in trying to fill the silence, I think. <laughs> yes, there were. And eventually we went into rants. <laughs> right. The, uh, one of the better lines of, of that was, we're going to do rants instead of lightning talks, so form a line. <laughs> and it did happen. <laughs> yeah, people did have their stuff that they wanted to rant about. I mean, it was pretty good, you know, thinking on their feet and, you know, it looked like they had to replace some sort of integral cable that was really deep in the system in the podium. Yes, but they did get working. They did. Good the for end. them. I'm sure the hotel people must have been, you know, sweating, like, we have got to get this to work. Yeah, so we're at the AT&T Conference Center at UT, and it is a very great facility for hosting large conferences like this, and their staff is really on top of it. And like you said, they were having gaffer tape out and ripping cables out from under the stage within just a few minutes of the projector stopping working. It was, it was pretty great. 
But well, normally we close out the show with a we call it Fun Paper Friday, which is some some paper that may be in or out of our field that we just found really enjoyable and kind of interesting. But I thought we'd turn that around a little bit today and just say, what's your favorite paper that you've seen recently? <laughs> like uh, presented in a in a talk or. In a journal, let's say. So favorite published paper could be in Plus One or anything else. Oh, my gosh. So I, I'd seen the, the list of questions, and my mind immediately went to a paper that I like that's in psychology, but it's I don't know if you could qualify it as... I don't think it's fun. <laughs> well, that's okay. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I tend to really gravitate towards the kind of paradigm-shifting papers. I mean, I guess in that sense, who doesn't? Um, where... You know, people take um, sort of common accepted wisdom and, and turn it on its head and, you know, usher in whole new fields of research. Um, I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by some of the sorts of um, theory overturn, basically, in, in developmental psychology, how, how theories have, have changed since, say, Piaget and evolved. But again, I don't think that really counts as fun. Am I just that big of a nerd? Can you give me an example of a fun paper? What would be an example of a fun paper? Well, let's see. We had a fun paper a few weeks ago that studied beer bottles and whether full or empty beer bottles were stronger and if they were strong enough to cause skull fracture. (laughs) So um, I think a lot of this say that Ignoble, Ignobel? Yes, yes, something in in those lines. Um, I was... I thought it was really interesting um, for one paper, and I can't remember if this is actually one paper or two papers, but I remember two specific findings. One was explaining why ponytails bounce from side to side when you run. (laughs) And it's actually incredibly complicated. The physics of hair in a ponytail are ridiculously complicated, and I thought that was really cool. Um, And the other one, which made me feel validated as a a klutz, was... um, uh, that the speed at which we walk, it kind of it makes the coffee maximally likely, based on like surface tension, to slosh out. That paper is in the uh, the list of fun papers to do on the show <laughs> at some point. But I didn't know about the ponytail one, so I'll put a link to that in show notes for <laughs> Fun Paper Friday because that sounds like a fantastic one to read. And I can imagine that it would be very complicated. The coffee one was incredibly complicated as well, much more so right. than you would think. Uh, the instrumented coffee cup was was pretty great. Yeah. But Well, thanks for joining us and taking some time out of the conference. I know it's been a really busy week, and we still got a few days to go. <laughs> right. I've, I've been really enjoying it. And you know, thank you for so, so much for having me on the show. This has been really fun. Great. Well, thanks for joining us this week. And you can always get a hold of us at don'tpanicgeocast.com or on Twitter. We are at don'tpanicgeo. I am at geo underscore Lehman or johnrlehman.com. And where can folks find you or where would you like to be found on the Internet? Um, probably the best place to get a hold of me would be my uh, Twitter account. Um, you know, the, the, one of the tweets that's been really popular going around was um, how somebody's breakdown of their email address. Yes. And I don't follow that rule at all. So <laughs> um, my, uh, my Twitter handle, which you can't use to find me elsewhere, unfortunately, is Tweetotaler, like teetotaler, but tweeting. Fantastic. Well, until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science.
Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.